my friend. I see the clock has struck midnight. Please sit. I've been out digging up some old friends. Tonight our first story tells of the vultures family can be while waiting for a loved one to pass to the beyond. And how some wish death would hasten to guide their wealthy relative on their eternal journey. I give you honor to Balzac's dark tale, The Elixir of Life. One winter evening, in a princely palace at Ferrara, Don Juan Belvedero was giving a banquet to a prince of the house of Este. A banquet in those times was a marvellous spectacle which only royal wealth or the power of a, of a mighty lord could furnish forth. Seated about a table lit up with perf perfumed tapers, Seven laughter-loving women were in uh, in interchanging sweet talk. The white marble of the noble works of art about them stood out against the red stucco walls and made strong contrast with the rich turkey ta uh, carpets. Clad in satin, glittering with gold and covered with gems less brilliant than their eyes, each told a tale of energetic passions as diverse as their stars of beauty. They differed neither in their ideas nor in their language, but the expression of their eyes, their glances, occasional gestures, or the tones of their voices supplied a commentary. Dissolute, wanton, melancholy, or satirical to their words. One seemed to be saying, the frozen heart of age might kindle at my beauty. Another, I love to lounge upon cushions and think with rapture of my adorers. A third, a neophyte, as these, at these banquets, was inclined to blush. I feel remorse in the depths of my heart. I am a Catholic and afraid of hell, but I love you. I love you so that I can sacrifice my hereafter to you. The fourth drained a cup of Cheyenne wine. Give me a joyous life, she cried. I begin life afresh each day with the dawn forgetful of the past with the intoxication of yesterday's raptures still upon me I drink deep of life a whole lifetime of pleasure and of love the woman who sat next to Juan Belvedero looked at him with a feverish glitter in her eyes she was silent then I should need no hired bravo to kill my lover if he forsook me she cried at last and laughed but the marvellously wrought gold uh, comfort box in her fingers was crushed by her convulsive clutch. When are you to be Grand Duke? asked the sixth. There was the, f the frenzy of a bashant in her eyes and her teeth gleamed between the lips parted with a smile of cruel glee. Yes, when is that father of yours going to die? asked the seventh. "'throwing her bouquet at Don Juan with bewitching playfulness. "'It was a childish girl who spoke, "'and the speaker was wont to make sport of sacred things. "'Oh, don't talk about it,' cried Don Juan, "'the young and handsome giver of the banquet. "'There is but one eternal father, and as ill luck will have it, "'here's mine, the seven Ferraras.' Don Juan's friends, the prince himself, gave a cry of horror. 
200 years later in the days of Louis XV, people of taste would have laughed at this witticism. Or was it perhaps that at the outset of an orgy there is a, a certain unwanted lucidity of mind? Despite the taper light, the clamour of the senses, the gleam of gold and silver, the fumes of wine and the exquisite beauty of the women, there may perhaps have been in the depths of the revellers' hearts some struggling glimmer of reverence for, the, for things divine and human, until it was drowned in glowing floods of wine. Yet even when the flowers had been crushed, eyes were growing dull, and drunkenness in rebellious phrase had taken possession of them down to their sandals. During that brief pause, a door opened, and at once the divine presence was revealed as Belshazzar's feast. So now it seemed to be manifest in the apparition of an old white-haired servant who tottered in and looked sadly from under knitted brows at the revellers. He gave a withered glance at the garlands, the golden cups, the pyramids of fruit, the dazzling lights of the banquet, the blushed, scared faces, the hues of the cushions pressed by the white arms of the women. My lord, your father is dying, he said, and at, the, at those solemn words uttered in hollow tones, a veil of crepe seemed to be drawn over the wild mirth. Don Juan, who's uh, rose to his feet with a a gesture to his guests that might be rendered by, excuse me, this kind of thing does not happen every day. Does it so seldom happen that a father's death surprises youth in the full-blown full splendour of life, in the midst of the mad riot of an orgy? Death is as unexpected in his caprice as a courtesan in her disdain. But death is truer. Death has never forsaken any man. Don Juan closed the door of the banqueting hall and as he went down the long gallery through the cold and darkness he strove to assume an expression in keeping with the part he had to play. He had thrown off his mirthful mood as he had thrown down his table napkin. At, at the first thought of his role the night was dark, the mute servitor, his guide to the chamber where the dying man lay, lighted the way so dimly that death aided by cold silence and darkness and it may be by a reaction of drunkenness could send some sober thoughts through the spendthrift's soul he examined his life and became thoughtful like a man involved in a lawsuit on his way to the court Bartolomeo Belvidero Don Juan's father was an old man of 90 who had devoted the greatest part of his life to business pursuits. He had acquired vast wealth in many a journey to magical eastern lands and knowledge, so it was said more valuable than the gold and diamonds, which had almost ceased to have any value for him. I would give more to have a tooth in my head than for a ruby, he would say at times with a smile. The indulgent father loved to hear Don Juan's story of this and that, that wild freak of youth. So long as the follies amuse you, dear boy, he would say laughingly as he lavished money on his son. Age never took such pleasure in the sight of youth. The fond father did not remember his own decaying powers while he looked on with that brilliant young life. Barolomeo Belvedere, at the age of 60, had fallen in love with an angel of peace and beauty. Don Juan had 
been the sole fruit of his of this late and short-lived love. For 15 years, the widower had mourned the loss of his beloved Joanna, and so this sorrow of life, this sorrow of life, his son and his numerous household had attributed the strange habits that he had contracted. He had shut himself up in the least comfortable wing of his palace and very seldom left his uh, apartments. Even Don Juan himself must first ask permission before seeing his father. If this hermit, unbound by vows, came or went in his place or in the streets of Ferrara, he walked as if he were in a dream, holy and gross, like a man at strife with a memory or a wrestler with some thought. The young Don Juan might give princely banquets. The palace might echo with clamorous mirth. Horses pawed the ground in the courtyards. Pages quarrelled and flung dice upon the stairs. But Bartolomeu ate his seven ounces of bread daily and drank water. A fowl was occasionally dressed for him simply that the black poodle, his faithful companion, might have the bones. Bartolomeu never complained of the noise. If the huntsman's horns and baying dogs disturbed his sleep during his illness, he only said, Ah, Don Juan has come back again. Never on earth has there been a father so little exacting and so indulgent, and, in consequence, young Belvedero, accustomed to treat his father unceremoniously, had all the faults of a spoiled child. He treated old Bartolomeo as a willful courtesan treats an elderly adorer, buying indemnity for insolence with a smile, selling good humour, submitting to be loved. Don Juan, beholding scene after scene of his young years, saw that it would be a difficult task to find his father's indulgence at fault. Some newborn remorse stirred the depths of his heart. He felt almost ready to forgive this father now about to die for for having lived so long. He had an, ex- an accession of filial piety, like a thief's return in thought to honesty at the prospect of a million adroitly stolen. Before long, Don Juan had crossed the lofty, chilly suite of rooms in which his father lived, the penetrating influences of the damp, close air, the mutinous, diffused by old tapestries and presses thickly covered with dust had passed into him and now he stood in the old man's antiquated room in the repulsive presence of the deathbed beside a dying fire a flickering lamp on a gothic table sent broad uncertain shafts of light fainter or brighter across the bed so that the dying man's face seemed to wear a different look at every moment the bitter wind whistled through the crannies of the ill-fitting casements There was a smothered sound of snow lashing the windows. The harsh contrast of these sights and sounds with the scenes which Don Juan had just quitted was so sudden that he could not help uh, shuddering. He turned cold as he came towards the bed. The lamp flared in a sudden vehement gust of wind and lighted up his father's face. The features were wasted and distorted. The skin that cleaved to their bony outlines had taken one livid hues all the more ghastly by force of contrast with the white pillows on which he lay 
The muscles about the toothless mouth had contracted the pain and drawn apart the lips. The moans that issued between them with appalling energy found an accompaniment in the howling of the storm without. In spite of every sign of coming dissolution, the most striking thing about the dying face was its incredible power. It was no ordinary spirit that wrestled there with death. The eyes glared with strange fixity of gaze from the cavernous sockets hollowed by disease. It seemed as if Bartolomeo sought to kill some enemy sitting at the foot of his bed by the intent gaze of dying eyes. That steady, remorseless look was the more appalling because the head that lay upon the pillow was passive and motionless as a skull upon a doctor's table. The outlines of the body revealed by the covalet were no less rigid and stiff. He lay there as one dead, save for those eyes. There was something automatic about the moaning sounds that came from the mouth. Don Juan felt something like shame that he, he must be brought thus to his father's bedside, wearing a courtesan's bouquet. Redolent of the fragrance of the banqueting chamber and the fumes of wine. You're enjoying yourself, the old man cried as he saw his son. Even as he spoke, the pure high notes of a woman's voice, sustained by the sound of the viol on which she was as on which she accompanied her song, rose above the rattle of the storm against the casements and floated up to the chamber of death. Don Juan stopped his ears against the barbarous answer to his father's speech. I bear no grudge, my child, Bartolomeo went on. The words were full of kindness, but they hurt Don Juan. He could not pardon his heart searching goodness on his father's part. What a remorseful memory for me, he cried hypocritically. Poor Juanino, the dying man went on in a smothered voice. I have always been so kind to you that you could not surely desire my death. Oh, if it were only possible to keep you here by giving up a part of my own life, cried Don Juan. We can always say this sort of thing, this spendthrift thought. It is as if I laid the whole world at my mistress' feet. The thought had scarcely crossed his mind when the old poodle barked. Don Juan shivered. The response was so intelligent that he fancied the dog must have understood him. I was sure that I could count upon you, my son, cried the dying man. I shall live. So be it, you shall be satisfied. I shall live, but without depriving you of a single day of your life. He is raving, thought Don Juan. Aloud, he added, Yes, dearest father, yes, you shall live, of course, as long as I live your image will be forever in my heart. It is not that kind of life that I mean, said the old noble, summoning all his strength to sit up in bed. For a thrill of doubt ran through him, one of those suspicions that came into being under a dying man's pillow. Listen, my son, he went on in a voice grown weak with that last effort. I have no more wish to give up life than you to give up wine and mistresses, horses and hounds and hawks and gold. I can well believe it, thought the son, and he knelt down by the bed and kissed Bartolomeo's cold hand. But father, my dear father, he added aloud, we must submit to the will of God. I am God, muttered the dying man. Do not blaspheme 
cried the other as he saw the menacing expression on his father's face. Beware what you say. You have received extreme unction. And I should be inconsolable if you were to die before my eyes in mortal sin. Will you listen to me? cried Bartholomew. And his, as, and his mouth twitched. Don Juan held his peace. An ugly silence prevailed. Yet above the muffled sound of the beating of the snow against the windows rose the sounds of the beautiful voice and the viol in unison. Far off and faint as the dawn, the dying man smiled. Thank you, he said, for bringing those singing voices and the music. A banquet. Young and lovely women with their fair faces and dark tresses. All the pleasure of life. Bid them wait for me, for I'm about to begin life anew. The delirium is at its height, said Don Juan to himself. I have found a way of coming to life again, the speaker went on. Then just look in that table drawer, press the spring hidden by the griffin, and it will fly open. I have found it, father. Well, then now take out a little file of rock crystal. I have it. I have spent twenty years in... But even as he spoke, the older man felt how very near the end he had come and summoned all his dying strength to say, As soon as the breath is out of me, rub me all over with that liquid and I shall come to life again. There is very little of it, his son remarked. Though Bartolomeo could no longer speak, he could still hear and see. When those words dropped from Don Juan... His head turned with appalling quickness. His neck was twisted like the throat of some marble statue which the sculptor had condemned to remain stretched out forever. The wide eyes had come to have a ghastly fixity. He was dead, and in death he lost his last and sole illusion. He had sought a shelter in his son's heart and had proved to be a sepulchre, a pit deeper than men dig for their dead. The hair on his head had risen and stiffened with horror. His agonised glance still spoke. He was a father rising in just anger from his tomb to demand vengeance at the throne of God. There, it is all over with the old man, cried Don Juan. He had been so interested in holding the mysterious file to the lamp as a drinker holds up the wine bottle at the end of a meal that he had not seen his father's eyes fade. The cowering poodle looked from his master to the elixir just as Don Juan himself glanced again and again from his father to the flask. The lamplight flickered. There was a deep silence. The vial was mute. Juan Belvedero thought that he saw his father stir and trembled. The changeless gaze of those accusing eyes frightened him. He closed them hastily as he would have closed a loose shutter swayed by the wind of an autumn night. He stood there motionless, lost in a world of thought. Suddenly the silence was broken by a, a shrill sound like the creaking of a rusty spring. It startled Don Juan. He all but dropped the file. A sweat colder than the blade of a dagger issued through every pore. It was only a piece of clockwork, a wooden clock that sprang out the and crowed three times, an ingenious co uh, contrivance by which the, the learned of that epoch were wont to be awakened at the appointed hour to begin the labours of the day. 
Through the windows there came already a flush of dawn. The thing, composed of wood and cords and wheels and pulleys, was more faithful in its service than in his duty to Bartolomeo. He, a man with a peculiar piece of human mechanism within him that we call a heart. Don Juan, the sceptic, shut the flask again in the secret drawer in the Gothic table. He meant to run no more risks of losing the mysterious liquid. Even at that solemn moment, he heard the murmur of a crowd in the gallery, a confused sound of voices, of stifled laughter and light footfalls, and the rustling of silks, the sounds of a band of revellers struggling for gravity. The door opened, and in came the prince and Don Juan's friends, the seven courtesans and the singers, dishevelled and wild like dancers, surprised by the dawn, when the, ta- when the tapers that have burned through the night struggle with the sunlight. They had come to offer the customary condolence to the young heir. Oh, is poor Don Juan really taking this seriously, said the prince in Rambilla's ear. Well, his father was very good, she returned, but Don Juan's night thoughts had left such unmistakable traces on his features that the crew was awed into silence. The men stood motionless. The women, with wine-parched lips and cheeks marbled with kisses, knew down and knelt down and began a prayer. Don Juan could scarce help trembling when he saw splendour and mirth and laughter and song and youth and beauty and power bowed in reverence before death. But in those times... In that adorable Italy of the 16th century, religion and revelry went hand in hand and religious excess became a sort of debauch and a debauch a religious rite. The prince grasped Don Juan's hand affectionately, then when all faces had simultaneously put on the same grimace, half gloomy, half indifferent, the whole mask disappeared and and left the chamber of death empty. It was like an allegory of life as they went down the staircase the prince spoke to River Berilla now who would have taken Don Juan's impiety for a boast he loves his father did you see that black dog asked Br- Br- Brambilla he is enormously rich now sighed Bianca Cavatolion what is that to me cried the proud Veronese she who had crushed the comfort box "'What does it matter to you, forsooth?' cried the Duke. "'With his money he is as much a prince as I am.' "'The first on one was swayed hither and, and thither by countless thoughts "'and wavered between two decisions. "'He took counsel with the gold heaped up by his father "'and returned in the evening to the chamber of death. "'His whole soul brimming over with hideous selfishness. "'He found all his household busy there. "'His lordship was to lie in state to... Uh, tomorrow, all Ferrara would flock to behold the wonderful spectacle, and the servants were busy deciding the room and the couch on which the dead man lay. At a sign from Don Juan, all his people stopped, dumbfounded and trembling. Leave me alone here, he said, and his voice was changed, and do not return until I leave the room. When the footsteps of the old servitor, who was the last to go, echoed but faintly along the paved gallery, Don Juan hastily locked the door, and sure that he was quite alone. Let us try, he said to himself. Bartolomeo's body was stretched on a long table, 
the embalmers had laid a sheet over it to hide from all eyes the dreadful spectacle of a corpse so wasted and shrunken that it seemed like a skeleton, and only the face was uncovered. This mummy-like figure lay in the middle of the room. The limp clinging linen lent itself to the outlines it shrouded, so sharp, bony and thin. Large violet patches had already begun to spread over the face. The embalmer's work had not been finished too soon. Don Juan, strong as he was in his scepticism, felt a tremor as he opened the magic crystal flask. When he stood over that face, he was trembling so violently that he was actually obliged to wait for a moment. But Don Juan had acquired an early familiarity with evil. His morals had been corrupted by a licentious court. A reflection worthy of the Duke of Urbino crossed his mind, and it was a keen sense of curiosity that goaded him into boldness. The devil himself might have whispered the words that were echoing through his brain, moisten one of the eyes with the liquid. He took up a linen cloth, moistened it sparingly with the precious fluid, and passed it lightly over the right eyelid of the corpse. The eye unclosed. Aha, said Don Juan. He gripped the flask tightly as as we clutch in dreams the branch from which we hang suspended over a precipice. For the eye was full of life. It was a young child's eye set in the in a death's head. The light quivered in the depths of its youthful liquid brightness, shaded by the long dark lashes. It sparkled like the strange lights that tra- travellers see in lonely places in winter nights. The ice seemed as if it would fain dart fire at Don Juan. He saw it thinking, upbraiding, condemning, uttering accusations, threatening doom. He cried aloud and gnashed upon him. All anguish that that shakes human souls was gathered there. Supplications, the most tender, the the wrath of kings, the, the love in a girl's heart pleading with the headsman. Then and after all these... The deeply searching glance of a man turns on his fellows as he mounts the last step of the scaffold. Life so dilated in his fragment of life that Don Juan shrank back. He walked up and down the room. He he dared not meet that gaze, but he saw nothing else. The ceiling and the hangings, the, the whole room was sown with, with living points of fire and intelligence. Everywhere those gleaming eyes haunted him. He might very likely have lived another hundred years, he cried involuntarily. Some diabolical influence had drawn him to his father, and again he gazed at that luminous spark. The eyelid closed and opened again abruptly. It was like a woman's sign of assent. It was an intelligent movement. If a voice had cried yes, Don Juan could not have been more startled. What is it to be done, he thought. He nerved himself to try to close the white eyelid in vain. Kill it? That would perhaps be parasite, he debated with himself. Yes, the eye said with a strange sardonic quiver of the lid. Aha, said Don Juan to himself. Here is witchcraft at work. And he went closer to crush the thing. A great tear trickled over the hallowed cheeks and fell on Don Juan's hand. It is scalding, he cried. He sat down. The struggling, the struggle exhausted him. It was as if, like Jacob of old, he was wrestling with an angel. At last he rose. So long as there is no blood, he muttered. Then, summoning all the courage needed for a coward's crime, he extinguished the eye, pressing it with the linen cloth. 
turning his head away. A terrible groan startled him. It was the poor poodle who died with a long-drawn howl. Could the brute have been in the secret? Thought Don Juan, looking down at the faithful creature. Don Juan Belvedere was looking uh, was looked upon as a dutiful son. He reared a white marble monument on his father's tomb and employed the greatest sculptors of the time upon it. He did not recover perfect ease of mind till the day when his father knelt in marble before religion and the heavy weight of the stone had sealed the mouth of the grave in which he had laid the one feeling of remorse that sometimes flitted through his soul in moments of physical weariness. He had drawn up a list of the wealth heaped up by the old merchant in, in the east, and he became a miser. Had he, not the, had he not to provide for a second lifetime? His views of life were the more profound and penetrating. He grasped its significance as a whole, the better, because he saw it across a grave. All men, all things, he analysed once and for all. He summed up the past, represented by its records, the present in the law, its crystallized form, the future revealed by religion. He took spirit and matter and flung them into his crucible and found nothing. Thenceforth he became Don Juan. At the outset of his life, in the prime of youth and the beauty of youth, he knew the illusions of life for what they were. He despised the world and made the utmost of the world. His felicity would not have been of the bourgeois kind, rejoicing in periodically recurrent bullying, in the comforts of a warming pan, a lamp of a night, and a new pair of slippers once a quarter. Nay, rather he seized upon existence as a monkey snatches a nut, and after no long toying with it, proceeds deftly to strip off the mere husks to reach the savoury kernel within. Poetry in the sublime transports of passion scarcely reached ankle depth with him now. He in no wise fell into the error of strong natures who flatter themselves now and again that little souls will believe in a great soul and are willing to barter their own lofty thoughts of the future for the small change of our life annuity needs. He, even as they had, had he chosen might well have walked with his feet on the earth and his head in the skies, but he liked better to sit on earth to wither the soft, fresh, fragrant lips of a woman with kisses. For like death, he devoured everything without, without scruple as he passed. He would have full fruition. He was an oriental lover, seeking prolonged pleasures easily obtained. He thought nothing but a woman in, but a woman in women and cultivated cynicism until it became with him a habit of mind. When his mistress, from the couch on which she lay, soared, and he lost it in regions of ecstatic bliss, Don Juan followed suit, earnest, expansive, serious as any German student. But he, he said, I, while she, in the transports of intoxication, said we. He understood to an admiration of the, the art of abandoning himself to the influence of a woman. He was always clever enough to make her believe that he trembled like some boy fresh from college before his first partner at a dance when he asks her, do you like dancing? But no less, he could be terrible at need, could unsheath a formidable sword and make short work of commandments. 
banter lurked beneath his simplicity. Mocking laughter behind his tears, for he had tears at need, like any woman nowadays who says to her husband, Give me a carriage, or I shall go into a consumption. For the merchant, the world is a bale of goods or a mass of circulating bills. For most young men, <coughs> it is a woman. And for a woman, here and there, it is a man. For a certain order of mind, it is a salon, a coterie, a quarter of the town, or some single city. But Don Juan found his world in himself. This model of grace and dignity, this captivating wit, moored his bark by every shore, but wherever he was led, he was never carried away and was only seared in a course of his own choosing. The more he, the more he saw, the more he doubted. He watched men narrowly and saw how, beneath the surface, courage was often rashness and prudence, cowardice, generosity, a, a clever piece of calculation, justice, a wrong delicacy, pusillanimity, honesty, a modus vivendi, and by some strange dispensation of fate, he must see that those who at heart were really honest, scrupulous, just, generous, prudent, or brave were held cheaply by their fellow men. What a cold-blooded jest, said he to himself. It was not devised by a god. From that time forth he renounced a better world and never uncovered himself when a name was pronounced. And for him the carven saints in the churches became works of art. He understood the mechanism of society too well to clash wantonly with its prejudices. For, after all, he was not as powerful as the executioner, but he evaded social laws with the wit and grace so well rendered in the scene with Madame de Manche. He was, in fact, Moliere's Don Juan, Goethe's Forst, Byron's Manfred, Mathurin's Melmoth, great allegorial figures drawn by the, the greatest men of genius in Europe to which Mozart's harmonies perhaps do no more justice than Rossini's lyre. Terrible allegorical figures that shall render uh, shall endure as long as the principle of evil existing in the in the heart of man shall produce a few copies from century to century. Sometimes the type becomes half human with incarnate as a mirable. Sometimes it is an inarticulate force in a Bonaparte. Sometimes it overwhelms the universe with irony as a rebellious. Or yet again it appears when a miracle de recall elects to laugh at human beings instead of scoffing at things, or when one of the most famous of our ambassadors goes a step further and scoffs at both men and things, but the profound genius of Juan Belvedero anticipated and resumed all these. All things were a jest to him. His was the life of a mocking spirit. All men, all institutions, all realities, all ideas were within its scope. As for eternity, after half an hour of familiar conversation with Pope Julius II, he said, laughing, If it is absolutely necessary to make a choice, I would rather believe in God than in the devil. Power combined with goodness always offers more resources than the spirit of evil can boast. Yes, still God requires repentance in this present world. 
So you always think of your indulgences, returned Don Juan Belvedere. Well, well, I, I, I have another life in reserve in which to repent of the sins of my previous existence. Oh, if you regard old age in that light, cried the Pope, you are in danger on canonization. After your elevation to the papacy, nothing is incredible. And they went to watch the workmen who were building the huge basilica dedicated to St. Peter. St. Peter is the man of genius who had laid the foundation of our double power, the Pope said to Don Juan. Deserves this monument. Sometimes, though, at night I think the deluge will wipe all this out with a sponge and it will be all to begin over again. Don Juan and the Pope began to laugh. They understood each other. A fool would have gone to the morrow to amuse himself with Julius II in Raphael's studio or at the delicious Villa Madama. Not so Belvedaro. He went to see the Pope as pontiff to be convinced of any doubts that he, Don Juan, entertained. Over his cups, the Revere would have been capable of denying his own infallibility and of commenting on the apocalypse. Nevertheless, this legend has not been undertaken to furnish materials for future biographies of Don Juan. It is intended to prove to honest folk that Belvedere did not die in a duel with stone, as some lithographers would have us believe. When Don Juan Belvedere reached the age of 60, he settled in Spain, and there in his old age he married a young and charming Andalusian wife. But of set, set purpose, he was neither a good husband nor a good father. He had observed that we are never so tenderly loved as by women to whom we scarcely give a thought. Donna Elvira had been devoutly brought up by an old aunt in a castle a few leagues from San Luca in a remote part of Andalusia. She was a model of devotion and grace. Don Juan foresaw that this would be a woman who would struggle long against a passion before yielding and therefore hoped to keep her virtuous until his death. It was a jest undertaken in earnest, a game of chess which he meant to reserve till his old age. Don Juan had learned wisdom from, his, from the mistakes made by his father, Bartolomeo. He determined that the least details of his life in old age should be subordinated to one object, the success of the drama which was to be played out upon his deathbed. For the same reason, the largest part of his wealth was buried in the cellars of his palace at Ferrara, whither he seldom went. As for the rest of his fortune, it was invested in a life annuity with a view to give his wife and children an interest in keeping him alive. But this Machiavellian piece of, of foresight was scarcely necessary. His son, young Philippe of Belvedere, grew up as a Spaniard as religiously conscientious as his father was ir irreligious. In virtue, perhaps, of the old rule, a miser has a spendthrift son. The abbot of San Luca was chosen by Don Juan to be the director of the con uh, conscious of the Duchess of Belvedere and her son Philippe. The ecclesiastic was a holy man, well-shaped and admirably well-proportioned. He had fine dark eyes, a head like that of Tiberius, worn with fasting, bleached by an ascetic life, 
and like all dwellers in the wilderness, was daily tempted. The noble lord had hopes, it may be, of dispatching yet another monk before his term of life was out. But whether because the abbot was was every whit as clever as Don Juan himself, or Donna Elvira possessed more discretion or more virtue than Spanish uh, than Spanish wives are usually credited with, Don Juan was compelled to spend his declining years beneath his own roof, with no more scandal under it than if he had been an ancient country parson. Occasionally he would take wife and son to task for negligence in the duties of religion, peremptorily insisting that they should carry out the letter the uh, obligations imposed upon the flock by the court of Rome. Indeed, he was never so well pleased as when he had set the courtly abbot discussing some case of conscience with Don Elvira and Philippe. At length, however, despite the prodigious care that the great Manifico Don Juan Belvedero took of himself, the days of decrepitude came upon him and with those days the constant importunity of physical feebleness and importunity of uh, all the more distressing by contrast with the wealth of memories of his impetuous youth and the sensual pleasures of middle age the unbeliever who in his height of his cynical humour had been wont to persuade others to believe in laws and principles at which he scoffed must repose nightly upon a perhaps. The great duke, the pattern of good breeding, the champion of many a carouse, the proud ornament of courts, the man of genius, the graceful winner of hearts that he had wrung as as carelessly as a peasant uh, twists an, an osier wife, was now the victim of a cough, of a ruthless sciatica, of an unmannerly gout. His teeth gradually deserted him, as at the end of an evening the fairest and best-dressed women take their leave one, one by one till the room is left empty and desolate. The active hands became palsy-stricken. The shapely legs tottered as he walked. At last one night a stroke of apoplexy caught him by the throat in its icy clutch. After that fatal day, he grew morose and stern. He would reproach his wife and son with their devotion, casting it in their teeth that the affecting and thoughtful care that they lavished so tenderly upon him was bestowed because they knew that his money was invested in a life annuity. Then Elvira and Philippe would shed bitter tears and redouble their caresses, and the wicked old man's insinuating voice would take an affectionate tone. Uh, you will forgive me, you, will you not, dear friends, dear wife? I am rather a nuisance. Uh, alas, Lord in heaven, how canst thou use me as the instrument by which thou provest these two angelic creatures, I who should be the joy of their lives and become their scourge? In this manner he kept them tethered to his pillow, blotting out the memory of whole months of fretfulness and, and unkindness in one short hour when he chose to display for them the ever-new treasures of his pinchbeck tenderness and charm of manner. A system of paternity that yielded him 
an infinitely better return than his own father's indulgence had formerly gained. At length, his bodily infirmities reached a point when the task of laying him in bed became as difficult as the navigation of a felucca in the perils of an intricate channel. Then came the day of his death, and this brilliant sceptic, whose mental faculties alone had survived the most dreadful of all destructions, found himself between his two special antipathies, the doctor and the confessor. But he was jovial with them. Did he not see a light gleaming in the future beyond the veil? The pall that is like lead for other men was thin and translucent for him. The light-footed, irresistible delights of youth danced beyond it like shadows. It was on a beautiful summer evening that Don Juan felt the near approach of death. The sky of Spain was serene and cloudless. The air was full of the scent of orange blossom. The stars shed clear pure gleams of light nature without seemed to give the dying man assurance of resurrection a dutiful and obedient son sat there watching him with loving and respectful eyes towards eleven o'clock he desired to be left alone with his single-hearted being Philippe said the father in tones so soft and affectionate that the young man trembled and tears of gladness came to his eyes Never had that stern father spoken his name in such a tone. Listen, my son, the dying man went on. I am a great sinner. All my life long, however, I have thought of my death. I was once the friend of the great Pope Julius II, and that illustrious pontiff, fearing lest the excessive excitability of my senses should entangle me in mortal sin between the moment of my death and the time of my anointing with the holy oil gave me a flask that contains a little of the holy water that once issued from the rock in the wilderness I have kept the secret of this squandering of a treasure belonging to holy church but I am permitted to reveal the mystery in articulo mortis to my son you will find the flask in a drawer in that gothic table that always stands by the head of the bed. The precious little crystal flask may be of use yet again for you, dearest Philippe. Will you swear to me by your salvation to carry out my instructions faithfully? Philippe looked at his father and Don Juan was too deeply learned in the light of the, the law of the human countenance not to die in peace with that look as his warrant as his own father had died in despair at meeting the expression in his son's eyes you deserved to have a better father Don Juan went on I dare to confess my child that while the reverend abbot of San Luca was administering the viaticum I was thinking of the incompatibility of the coexistence of two powers so infinite as God and the devil Oh, Father. And I said to myself, when Satan makes his peace, he ought surely to stipulate for the pardon of his followers, or he will be the veriest scoundrel. The thought haunted me, so I shall go to hell, my son, unless you carry out my wishes. Oh, quick, tell me quickly, Father. As soon as I have closed my eyes, Don Juan went on, and that may be in a few minutes. You must take my body before it grows cold 
and lay her on a table in this room. Then put out the lamp. The light of the stars should be sufficient. Take off my clothes, reciting Aves and Paters the while, ra raising a soul to God in prayer, and carefully anoint my lips and eyes with this holy water. Begin with the face and proceed successively to my limbs and the rest of my body, my dear son. The power of God is so great that you must be astonished at nothing. Don Juan felt death so near that he added in a terrible voice, Be careful to not to drop the flask. Then he breathed his last gently in the arms of his son, and his son's tears fell fast over his sardonic, haggard features. It was almost midnight when Don Felipe Belvedero laid his father's body upon the table. He kissed the sinister brow and the grey hair, then he put out the lamp. By the soft moonlight that lit strange gleams across the country without, Philippe could dimly see his father's body, a vague white thing among the shadows. The dutiful son moistened a linen cloth with the liquid and absorbed in prayer he anointed the revered face. A deep silence reigned. Philippe heard faint, indescribable rustlings. It was the breeze in the treetops, he thought. But when he had moistened the right arm... He felt himself caught by the throat. A young, strong hand held him in a tight grip. It was his father's hand. He shrieked aloud. The flask dropped from his hand and broke in pieces. The liquid evaporated. The whole household hurried into the room. Holding torches aloft, the shriek had startled them and filled them with as much terror as if the trumpet of the angel sounding on the last day had rung through the earth and sky. The room was full of people, and a horror-stricken crowd beheld the fainting Philippe upheld by the strong arm of his father, who clutched him by the throat. They saw another thing, an unearthly spectacle. Don Juan's face grown young and beautiful as Antinous, with its dark hair and brilliant eyes and red lips, a head that made horrible efforts but could not move the dead, wasted body. An old servitor cried, A miracle, a miracle! And all the Spaniards echoed, A miracle, a miracle! Donna Elvira, too pious to attribute this to magic, sent for the abbot of San Luca, and the prior beholding the miracle with his own eyes, being a clever man and with withal an abbot desirous of augmenting his revenues, determined to turn the occasion to profit. He immediately gave out that Don Juan would certainly be canonized. He appointed a day for the celebration of the apotheosis in his convent, which thenceforth, he said, should be called the convent of San Juan of Luca. Are these words a sufficiently facetious grimace passed over the features of the late Duke. The taste of the Spanish people for ecclesiastical solemnities is so well known that it should not be difficult to imagine the religious pantomime by which the convent of San Luca celebrated the translation of the blessed Don Juan Belvedero to, uh, to the Abbey Church. The tale of the partial resurrection had spread so quickly from village to village that a day or two after the death of the illustrious 
Noblemen, the report had reached every place within 50 miles of San Luca, and it was as good as a play to see the, wor the roads covered already with crowds flocking in on all sides, their curiosity whetted still further by the prospect of a uh, te diem si uh, sung by the torchlight. The old Abbey Church of San Luca, a marvellous building erected by the Moors, a mosque of Allah, which for three centuries had heard the name of Christ, could not hold the throng that poured in to see the ceremony. Hidalgos in their velvet mantles with their good swords at their sides swarmed like ants and were so tightly packed in among the pillars that they had not, not room to bend the knees, which never bent save to God. Charming peasant girls in the beskina that defines the luxuriant outlines of their figures lent an arm to white-haired old men. Young men with eyes of fire walked beside aged crones in holiday array. Then came coupled, uh, couples tremulous with joy, young lovers led thither by curiosity, newly wedded folk, children timidly clasping each other by the hand. This throng, so rich in colouring, in vivid contrast, laden with flowers, enamelled like a meadow, sent up a soft murmur through the quiet night. Then the great doors of the church opened. Latecomers who remained without saw afar through the great open doorways, a scene of which the theatrical illusions of modern opera can give but a faint idea. The vast church was lighted up by thousands of candles, offered by saints and sinners alike, eager to win the favour of this new candidate for canonization. And these self-commending illuminations turned the great building into an enchanted fairyland. The black archways, the shafts and capitals, the recessed chapels with gold and silver gleaming in their depths, the galleries, the Arab traceries, all the most delicate outlines of that delicate sculpture burned in the excess of light like the fantastic figures in the red heart of a brazier. At the further end of the church, above that blazing sea, rose the, the high altar that, like a splendid dawn, all the glories of the golden lamps and silver candlesticks, of, of banners and tassels, at the shrines of the saints and votive offerings, piled before the gorgeous brightness of the relic reliquary in which Don Juan lay. The blasphemer's body sparkled with gems and flowers and crystal, with diamonds and gold and plumes white as the wings of seraphim. They had set it up on the altar where the pictures of Christ had stood. All about him blazed a host of tall candles. The air quivered in the radiant light. The worthy abbot of San Luca in pontifical robes with his mitre set with precious stones, his rochet and golden crozier set enthroned in imperial state among his clergy in the choir. Rows of impassive aged faces, silver-haired old men clad in fine linen albs were grouped among him. As the, as the saints who confessed Christ on earth are set by painters, each in his place about the throne of God in heaven, the presenter and the dignitaries of the, the chapter adorned with the gorgeous insignia of ecclesiastical vanity came and went through the clouds of incense like stars upon their courses in the firmament. When the hour of triumph arrived, the bells awoke the echoes far and wide and a whole vast crowd raised to God the first cry of praise that begins the 
te diem. A sublime cry, high, pure notes, the voices of women in ecstasy mingled in it with the sterner and deeper voices of men. Thousands of voices sent up a volume of sound so mighty that the straining, groaning organ pipes could not dominate that harmony. But the shrill sound of children singing among the choristers, the reverberation of deep bass notes, awakened gracious associations, visions of childhood and of man in his strength, and rose above that entrancing harmony of human voices blended in one sentiment of love. T.D.M. Lord Emmas. The chant went up from the black masses of men and women kneeling in the cathedral like a sudden breaking out of light and darkness, and the silence was shattered as by a peal of thunder. The voices floated up with the clouds of incense that had begun to cast thin bluish veils over the fanciful marvels of the architecture, and the aisles were were filled with splendour and perfume and light and melody. Even at the moment when that music of love and thanksgiving soared up to the altar, Don Juan, too well-bred not to express his acknowledgments, too witty not to understand how to take a jest, bridled up in his reliquary and responded with an appalling burst of laughter. Then the devil, having put him in mind of the risk of his running of being taken for an ordinary man, a saint, a boniface, a pantalinia. He interrupted the melody of love by a yell. The thousand voices of hell joined, joined in it. Earth blessed heaven banned. The church was shaken to its ancient foundations. To deem laudamus, cried the many voices. Go to the devil, brute beasts that you are. Dios, Dios, garajos dominios, idiots. What fools you are with your doted God. In a torrent of imprecations poured forth like a stream of red-hot lava from the mouth of Vesuvius. Dear Sabbath, Sabbath, cried the, the believers. You're insulting the majesty of hell, shouted Don Juan, gnashing his teeth. In another moment, the living arm struggled out of the reliquary and was brandished over the assembly in mocking and despair. The saint is blessing us, cried the old woman. Children, lovers, and the credulous among the crowd. And note how often we are deceived in the homage we pay. The great man scoffs at those who praise him and pays compliments now and again to those whom he laughs at in the depths of his heart. Just as the abbot, prostrate before the altar, was chanting, Sancte Johannes ora pro nobles, he heard a voice exclaim sufficiently distinctly, O Colion, what can be going on up there? cried the sub-prior as he saw the reliquary move. The saint is playing the devil, replied the abbot. Even as he spoke, the living head tore itself away from the lifeless body and dropped upon the sallow cranium of the officiating priest. Remember Dona Elvira, cried the thing with its teeth set fast in the abbot's head. The abbot's horror-stricken shriek disturbed the ceremony. All ecclesiastics hurried up and crowded about their chief. Idiot, tell us now if there is a god, the voice cried as the abbot, bitten through the brain, drew his last breath.
And now should we go to the body bag? <laughs> I wondered where that went. An eyeball I found staring at me through a keyhole one night. I best that I put that in my pocket for my supper later on. The first of our letters comes from Kelsey M. Who writes, I was walking back from the park with my toddler. It was getting dark and the street lights were coming on. All of a sudden my toddler was like, Everybody's coming. But nobody was behind us or in front of us. About 30 seconds later, my daughter said, Everybody move! As if we were walking through a crowd, but we were the only ones there. Oh, thank you, Kelsey. They do say that children are very perceptive and when it comes to spirits. I wouldn't be too worried. But chances are that the spirits your daughter saw may know now that she can see them. And well... <laughs> may have followed you both home. And Tara S. has written in with a recount of an experience her husband had. Uh, she writes, My house was built in the 2000s, so before that, nothing was there. It was just woods. But one night, after my husband had surgery, he slept on the couch of an our playroom. Around 12.30 a.m., I woke up and he was standing at the edge of my bed holding his pillow and it looked like he just saw a ghost. I asked him what was wrong and he said, something just tried to suffocate me. A girl was sitting on my chest with her hands around my neck and I couldn't breathe. He was terrified. Later on that night he felt a cold hand on his shoulder. At breakfast the next morning his daughter told him about this girl who sits on the edge of her bed and watches her sleep. He hadn't told her about his encounter and asked her what the girl looked like. His daughter described a girl that closely resembled the ghost who had tried to su suffocate him. Now Tara continues to say she was telling one of her co-workers, Lauren, about the little girl and her co-worker did some investigation. It turns out that in the early 1970s, three men had been hunting in the area and found the body of a little girl who had been strangled. Now this was all before the area had been established for residential and the body was found near where Tara's house now stands. The case still remains unsolved. Now we have kept Tara's location anonymous for her privacy. Uh, thank you for your email, Tara. Please let us know if there are any further occurrences. <laughs> Now, if you have any encounters with the unknown, the paranormal, the supernatural, please send an email to the Midnight Hour at info at iplradio.org.au with the Midnight Hour as the subject line. All letters are kept anonymous for privacy reasons. Similarly, if you wish to be interviewed for a segment of the Midnight Hour, please let us know. We'd be happy to organise an in-person interview if you are in Perth, Western Australia, or a Zoom interview if you're unable to come in in person. Now, we were meant to have an interview with someone from Aradale Lunatic Asylum in Victoria on the east coast of Australia tonight. However, we'll keep that for next week's show. And now, my dear friends, uh, I have to find it, but 
tonight's episode of Suspense. In 1949, a young radio personality decided to join an investigation in, uh, in a haunted house. We have a recording of that broadcast for your listening pleasure. Here is Ghost Hunt, starring Ralph Edwards, adapted from an original story by H.R. Wakefield. I give you Ghost Hunt. Mr. Ralph Edwards in Ghost Hunt, a suspense play produced and directed by Anton M. Leader. And now, Ralph Edwards in a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Didn't that leave you high, huh? Left me feeling treetop tall. That was Louis Armstrong's I Can't Give You Anything But Love. And that's all we have time for on the Hot and Mellow Hour tonight. Yes, 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 this is Smiley Smith, your favorite disc jockey. I hope, I hope, booting the Hot and Mellow Hour home for this evening. I'll be back again tomorrow night, minus the music, but with a little surprise for you. Tomorrow night, Friday night, as you know, is stunt night here at station WXP. And have I got a stunt for you. Last week, if you remember, I planted my wire recorder in the steam room at a lady's Turkish bath and then let you listen in on the playback, remember? <laughs> well, tonight, as soon as I leave the studio, do you know where I'm going? Hmm? Your friend Smiley is going to spend the night in a haunted house on a spook hunt. You heard me, a spook hunt in a haunted house. I'm bringing my little old wire recorder along with me, and if you tune in tomorrow evening at this time, you'll learn what it's like to spend a night in a haunted house. Ain't that something? <laughs> a real haunted house. No kidding. Four people are known to have committed suicide there. So tune in tomorrow night and share a real thrill with your old pal Smiley, I must be crazy, Smith. Good night. <laughs> Here for a cigar, Mr. Thorpe? I got some cigars in the dash there. No. Well, no reason for you to carry a chip on your shoulder, Mr. Thorpe. Oh, really? Well, I don't like this fool stunt. Well, I don't see it as a fool stunt at all. I really don't. I think it's the only way you're going to unload this house. Ordinary selling methods won't work in a case like this. I don't forget the reputation saddling this house. Four suicides since 1939. You know what people call it. The death trap. Yes. A lot of nonsense. Sure, but try to convince people of that. Anyway, when this disc jockey offered me this chance to kill all the rumors about the death or about the property, I just naturally jumped and took him up at it. Especially since it don't cost a cent. You sure about that? I'm not liable for a penny. Not a cent. We're doing him a favor letting him use the place, he said. Thanked me for the chance last night when I drove him out here. So one hand washes the other, as the feller says. He got a chance to pull off a stunt, and the wire recording will prove the people the property is A number one, and we increase the chance of selling the place. Well, as long as it doesn't cost me anything. Not a thing. He's using his own recorder, and I'm paying for the rental of a couple of walkie-talkies he hooked up to it. Well, uh, what about this uh, 
Reed. Does he charge anything? He comes gratis, too. Dr. Reed is a, a whatchamacallit, a psychic investigator. Belongs to a couple of societies that do nothing but hunt ghosts. <laughs> he showed me articles he's written about it in their magazine. Uh-huh. Well, here's the house. Yeah, looks real nice in the sunshine, don't it? Yeah, man, smell that sea breeze. You don't have to sell me. Well, let them know we're here. Probably asleep up all night and everything. Why don't they come out? You think they've gone? Well, I told them last night I'd pick them up around 11. Uh, Smith! Smith! Hey, Smiley! Dr. Reed! Yeah, fast asleep, I guess. We better go in and wake him up. Of course, they may have taken the bus back to town. Oh, no, no. It's a two-mile hike to the main highway. not to get excited. If something's happened to them in my house, I'm liable. Well, you try this side. I'll try that. All right. Uh, Smith. Hey, Smiley. Smith. Smith. Oh. McDonald. Come here. No, what? What is... Oh, no. Reed. Dr. Reed. No, no. Don't touch him, Mr. Thorpe. You'll get your hands off. Look. Blood. Is he dead? I can still feel his pulse. We better get him to hospital fast. Mr. Thorpe? No, no, thanks. Well, why not try to relax? The nurse said Reed would be all right as soon as he's had a blood transfusion. You told the radio station to be sure and call us as soon as they had any word about Smith? Yes, I told him. Uh, why don't you sit down? No, I'm all at sixes and sevens. What do you suppose happened out there last night? Well, we're going to know in just a second, just as soon as I can get this, this recorder set up. You don't suppose Smith and Reed got into a fight, do you? Yeah, there. Huh? A fight? I don't know. Well, what's wrong? Won't it work? Yeah, it works. Uh, take it easy. One, two, three. Testing. One, two, three. There. Testing. Please. One, two, three. All set, Dr. Reed? Mr. McDonald? Hey? Okay, here we go. 
This is Smiley Smith speaking. Smiley Smith, the ghost hunter. I don't know whether to hope this will turn out to be a success for the sake of the program or a failure for my own sake. Anyway, all the preparations have been made now, and it's up to the spooks. I better tell you where we are. Right now, we're standing on the lawn of a house about 12 miles above Malibu Beach. The ocean is 100 feet away, straight down. The house is perched on a cliff, and there's a sheer drop of about 100 feet right into the old Pacific. Maybe you can hear the surf pounding. I'll turn up the volume. Hear it? Now, I'm going to have you meet two gentlemen who are here with me. Incidentally, we're the only people around for miles and miles. First, I'd like you to meet Dr. Clarence Reed of the British and American Psychical Research Guild. Dr. Reed is a famous investigator of uh, psychic phenomena, and I'm very honored to be associated with him on this ghost hunt. He's smiling in an embarrassed sort of way. You're much too kind, Mr. Smith. Dr. Reed has conducted experiments in this field with such great believers in spiritualism as Oliver Lodge and Arthur Conan Doyle. He looks a bit like Santa Claus. He's short and stocky. You don't object, do you, Dr. Reed? Hmm? <laughs> no, 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 indeed. And he has a magnificent white beard, a truly great beaver. Dr. Reed is so enthusiastic about ghost hunting that he got out of a sick bed this evening to be with us. <laughs> Excuse me. My lungs. Mm-hmm. I was uh, gassed in the First World War. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Dr. Reed and I are here on the lawn looking at the house. Can't see much. It's around, oh, 11 p.m. now. Seems to be a rambling sort of house, two stories high. Since it was built, there have been four suicides here. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Now, in, into the mic, please. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> four suicides since 1939. I better tell them who you are so they won't think you're a ghost. Huh? Standing with the doc and me is a real estate agent, Mr. Charles McDonald. He handles this property, and he can tell you a lot more about it than I can. Well, the house was built by a man named Marcus, Toby Marcus, an orange grower. Built the house as a wedding present for his wife. Month after they moved in, she took her own life. On the day of her funeral, he committed suicide the same way. There have been two other cases since then, and did, I... Did uh, they all uh, jump into the ocean? Yeah, yeah, all four of them, right over there. Well. The last one was actually seen doing it about three years ago. He was seen running like all get out the edge of the cliff, and he was shouting and laughing and yelling as though there was people at his side running right along with him. You kidding? No, it's a fact. He was laughing and yelling and running, and when he got to the edge, uh, right over there, he jumped and never came above water. (laughs) As good an argument against cold baths as ever I've heard. (laughs) Uh, Since then, people just refuse to live in this house. Silly, I call it. Anyway, if you and Dr. Reed find any sign of a spook, I'll advise the owner to pull the house down and rebuild. But if you don't find anything, I'm hoping this will convince folks that here's a real buy. Yeah, okay, Mr. Smith, you and the doctor on your own. I'll be by in the morning to pick you up around 11. Goodbye, Mr. McDonald. I hope there's something left for you to pick up in the morning. (laughs) Well, it's almost pitch black, folks, and I guess Dr. Reed and I ought to begin. I don't believe in ghosts, never have, but what I say is this. If you're dead set on looking for them, this is a dandy place to do it. So long! Mr. McDonald just checked out. And then there were two. Well, three. Oh, my dog, yeah. Uh, folks, I have my dog, Jeff, with me. He's a wire-haired terrier, three years of age, and he can talk. Yeah, say hello, Jeff. Come on, Jeff, say hello. Come on. Well, anyway, he's a wire-haired terrier, and he's three years old. Uh, shall we go inside now, Dr. Reed? I was about to suggest it. Now, uh, how do we hunt ghosts, Doctor? How do we do it, huh? Well, we don't really hunt them. If there should be any in the house, they will come to us. Now, how cozy. And please, not ghosts. Do not refer to them as ghosts. We know them as apparitions. Now, remember, I've no desire to hurt their feelings. Where ghosts are concerned, I say live and let live. 
Well, we've opened the front door now. Maybe you heard the hinge squeak a little. Now we're standing here looking in. Can't see much. Smells sort of musty and damp. But... What's the matter, Jeff? What's the matter, boy? Jeff. Oh, come on now. Come on. My dog seems to object to entering this house. He has all four feet braced and he's straining against the leash. Perhaps he senses something we don't. Like apparitions, maybe? Perhaps. It's not unusual. Animals lack the veneer of sophistication we humans possess and are more sensitive to such ammunition. Yeah, come on, Jeff. Now, stop this nonsense. He probably smells a mouse or rat or something. Come on, Jeff. We're going in whether you like it or not. Well, there's a short entrance hall, and over there at the end of it is a flight of stairs leading to the second floor. Jeff! And uh, over here at the left is what seems to be a large reception room. We're entering this large room now. There are windows over there, French windows, and through them I can see the ocean. The electricity hasn't been turned on, so all I have to see by is a flashlight. Not a very powerful one at that. Dr. Reed is now adjusting his walkie-talkie. It's hooked up to my recorder so that he can cut in while he's hunting and tell us what he's found. Here's a few words from Doc before he sets forth on his investigation through the house. Ladies and gentlemen... <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Mr. Smith has introduced me as a ghost hunter. He spoke, I think, in a spirit of skepticism and, and levity... I'd like to assure you all that my purposes here are serious. I have spent my entire life seeking reliable proof of the appearances of apparitions. Have you ever seen any, ever? I have seen phenomena which lead me to believe in the possibility of their existence, although I have never seen any. I account myself sensitive to the evidence of their existence. This house, for example, affects me profoundly. It doesn't seem to affect you in the same way. I'm not too happy about all this, if that's what you mean. You are not psychic and therefore not sensitive to these matters as I am. I imagine the question in the minds of those of you listening to us is, shall we find apparitions? I don't know. But I feel they are here and that they are evil. I sense danger. I shall soon know. Dr. Reed's leaving the room now to make a tour of the house. First thing I'm going to do is open the windows and let some fresh air in. Ah, feels better already. Cooler anyway. I know that. Oh, oh it's a bat. A, ba a bat just flew flew into the room. I, I think it's a bat, not a bird. I didn't actually see it. Just its, its shadow as it fanned my face. There it is again. It touched me as it passed. Oh, oh, oh. Jeff! 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 Come back here! Jeff, you fool dog! Come back here! Dr. Reed... Dr. Reed? Dr. Reed? Reed speaking. What is it, Smith? Uh, Jeff has run off. My dog, he, he jumped through the window and ran off. Oh, so? I told you he sent something about this house, didn't I? Yeah, you want to come and see if you can determine what it was exactly that set him off? Uh, soon. I'm making my way slowly up the stairs toward the second floor now. I'm halfway up. I'll be down with you soon. <laughs> Folks, my dog's run away. You probably heard him howling. He jumped through the window and took off. Never did anything like that before. Frightened by the bat, I guess. Personally, alone here in this big room, I can understand how he must have felt. This isn't a cheerful spot by any means. I may not be psychic, but I sure have a feeling this house doesn't want us here. Read again. <coughs> Excuse me. I have something of great interest to report. I'm now standing in an alcove on the second floor trying to recover my breath. As I reached the head of the stairs, I felt what I think is a definite psychic manifestation. I felt suddenly as though I had been punched in the solar plexus. That's the only way I can describe it. At the same time, I began to perspire. Uh, my head is still swimming slightly, uh, and I have difficulty in swallowing. My pulse rate is around 110 in a minute. 
sense of evil is very strong. I feel very, uh, what shall I say, profoundly depressed. Do you want me up there? Uh, no, I prefer to remain up here alone. The presence of a disbeliever such as you might interfere with my investigation. Folks, I'd like you to get a picture of what it's like here. It's very quiet, for one thing. I've never been in such a quiet place, and it's pretty dark. No light except my flashlight. Tell you what, you go now and douse all the lights you have on. Go ahead, put out the lights, and that'll give you a clearer feeling of how it is here with me. Go ahead, put out the lights. Hey, did, did you hear that? <laughs> Real estate agent told me I'd probably hear rats and mice in the walls. Well, I can certainly hear them now. Even you can hear them, I think. It's as though... Dr. Leach speaking. I've been working my way toward the front room, the one directly above the one in which Mr. Smith is now. The vibrations have become stronger and more and more pronounced as I approach it. I think I am on the verge of an important discovery. Important discovery? Did you get that? Now I can hear Dr. Reed moving about in the room above. I don't suppose you can. Have a try anyway, huh? Hear him? I hope he finishes his investigation soon because, quite frankly, I'd like to get out of here. I can well imagine people becoming unhinged in this place. Right now I find myself pretty jumpy. Not being very brave, am I? It's being alone in this room down here that does it. This, this darned old house, it's, it's a very, I mean, you know, the atmosphere, it's so very... I wish only to make this hurried report before continuing with the investigation in this room. I have carefully sounded out all the parts in this room, and the emanations are most strong from what appears to be a closet, before which I am now standing. As soon as I open the door to this closet, I will have, I think, a thing of great interest to communicate. I find no key to the lock, and so I will attempt to remove the hinges with my penknife, and I will tell you what I find when I open it. I'll tell you what it would cost to get me to open that door. In the basement at Fort... There's that bat again. It seems to like me the way it keeps... Each time it passes, it touches my face or my neck with its wings. <laughs> Smelly things, bats. I don't suppose they bathe very often, if at all. I wonder how... Get the way, you bat! That bat'll be the death of me. Yeah, it's like a jingle, isn't it? Bat'll be the death of me, the death of me, the death of me. Bat'll be the death of me. It isn't far from London. No, that isn't the way it goes. It's uh, come down to Q um, in lilac time, in lilac time, in lilac time. Come down to Q in lilac time. It isn't far. I haven't thought of that since I was a kid in grammar school. Gee, I had a lonely childhood when you come right down to it. I mean, uh, oh, that's my affair, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. It well, certainly is. I have succeeded in removing the hinges to the door, and I find inside it is not a closet, but much larger. It is, I think, a dressing room. I have not yet been inside, but I am about to enter. Uh, what was I talking about? Uh, oh, yeah, bats. Well, the bat flying back and forth in this room. It... Did you hear that? Did, did you hear it? Dr. Reed must have knocked something over in the dressing room. A chair, a chair, yeah, a heavy chair by the sound of it. The chair or whatever it was must have fallen right, right over my head. That's the way it sounded. I, I, I can see a small stain forming right on the ceiling, right right over my head. <gasps> Something rammed across my foot just a rat, I think it was. I've always hated rats. Most people do, of course. That stain up there bothers me. It, it's gotten so big so soon. I think I'll take a chance and bother Reed and ask him what it is. Dr. Reed. Reed, can you hear me? Are you all right? Hello? Well, he... Didn't answer. I, I think he's just a little bit deaf. I think so. 
What do you suppose he's found, huh? I'm afraid this is rather dull for you listeners. I, I'm not finding so, of course. There. I, I heard him cough. Did you hear that cough? Hope he's all right. He, he, he got out of a sickbed to come here this evening, you know. He was gassed in the First World War, and this place is beginning to get on my nerves a wee bit. Just a teensy-weensy bit. <laughs> Reed, speaking, I... Hello? He switched off. That's the bad cough he's got. I feel so lonely. I've been alone so much in my life. Not so much now, of course, but when I was younger, I was alone so much of the time. You know, struggling to get ahead, living in a hall bedroom, wondering where my next meal is coming from. I get the blues just remembering it. Seem sad, young people having to spend so much time alone. Sad for old people, too, of course. I'm saying of course a lot. Of course I am. Hey, that stain on the ceiling, it's grown amazingly. It, it, it's actually beginning to drip. I mean, form bubbles. They'll start dropping soon. Colored bubbles, they seem to be. Odd-shaped stain, like a, a, a body lying on its back with its arms stretched out. <laughs> it's cheerful. <laughs> oh. I'll certainly advise Mr. McDonald to have this place pulled down. I'll go upstairs in a minute or two to see how Dr. Reed's making out. You know, listeners, I, I really believe I'd go completely crazy if I had to stay here much longer. Wears you down. That's exactly what it does. It wears you down. It's so close and musty in here. I feel sort of trapped. <laughs> Don't know why I said that. That's, that's what they call this place, you know, the death trap. There, what did I tell you? That stain started to drip drops. Drip drops. Drip drops. Drip drops. Drip. I'll catch the next one in my hand. Let you... <laughs> Reed! Dr. Reed! I'm, I'm going upstairs now, listeners. I'm, I'm afraid something has happened to Dr. Reed. I'm not kidding now. I mean, this is on the level. I, which room could it be now? Right? Left? No, right, right. This is it, I think. Well, <laughs> oh, evening, gentlemen. And, and madam... I'm so glad to see you. I, I, I was just aching to see somebody, anybody. I, I've been so lonely down there. Uh, what have you done with the doctor, huh? I know, I know he's been hurt. See the color of the bubble on my hand? What have you done with him? Make way, please, gentlemen, make way. Well, well this isn't the, the funniest darn thing. <laughs> this can't be Dr. Reed lying here. He didn't have a red beard. Now, don't crowd me, gentlemen. Don't don't crowd me, please. Huh? You want me to go where with you? You want me to do what? Speak up, gentlemen. To the cliffs. Down to the cliffs? You mean right now? <laughs> well, all right, if you'll come with me. I don't want to be alone anymore. You will come with me? All of you? All four of you? You too, ma'am? Oh, good. Come on, then. To the cliff. To the cliff. To the cliff. To the... He jumped over the cliff. He jumped over the cliff, McDonald. He jumped over... Mr. McDonald, Mr. Thorpe, you may come in to see Dr. Reed now. What? Uh-huh. Dr. Reed is conscious. You may see him now. Is... Is he able to talk? Just for a few minutes. In here. Come in. Come in, gentlemen. How are you, Dr. Reed? We've been waiting to see you. Yes, and I must apologize, gentlemen. I had a most unfortunate accident. Hemorrhage. Uh, hemorrhage? Yes. My lungs, you know. Now, gentlemen... Hemorrhage? Dr. Reed, what happened in that house? What happened to Smith? We've just been listening to a playback of the recordings you made out there. Smith? Well, isn't he with you? We've just heard the recording, Dr. Reed. 
Smith jumped over the cliff. Into the ocean. Oh, that poor boy. Dr. Reed, will you please tell us what happened? From what we heard on the recording, there were ghosts in that house. Ghosts? I didn't see any ghosts. But Smith, what about him? If he went over the cliff, it was fear that drove him over. But, Dr. Gentlemen, I didn't see any ghosts. As for that unfortunate young man, who can say now what he saw or thought he saw? Thank you, Ralph Edwards, for displaying your versatility by appearing as guest star on Suspense. Tonight's Suspense play was adapted for radio by Walter Newman from an original story by H.R. Wakefield with music composed by Lucian Morawieck and conducted by Lud Bluskin. The entire production was under the direction of Anton M. Leader. Another episode of Suspense next Friday night. Remember, if you're involved in paranormal investigations, the Midnight Hour would love to interview you. Maybe we can come on one of your investigations if you're in Perth, Western Australia. Please email info at iplradio.org.au and address your email to the Midnight Hour. Now, my friends, let me tell you about some of our local, shall we say, residents. <laughs> These may sound like just urban legends, but I promise they are as real as you or I. The first has been seen and reported for over a century. Dozens of victims have reported seeing the same experience. Though I'm sure many encounters have remained unreported. In every report, the victim has woken at the same time, 3 a.m., to see it standing at the foot of their bed, staring at them. It is shaped like a man, but nothing about it is human. Its eyes are black and hollow. You stare into them. You blink to shake the image away, but it's still there. Waxy-looking skin. Yellow, rotten teeth and foul breath. It's drooling, staring at you, leaning over you. You will never close your eyes without seeing it ever again. Every night, it returns, standing at the foot of your bed, watching you. Your insanity begins to decay. 
You no longer sleep, but you desperately clench your eyes shut. You know what you'll see staring back at you if you dare open them. <laughs> and another one. People around here call this guy the Smiling Man. Nobody knows where he came from. He's been seen for at least ten years. Here in Rockingham, usually in the early hours of the morning before sunrise, a figure has been seen lurking. I've experienced this myself when I've stayed later than usual at the radio station and been on my way home. I think it was about 3.30 or 4 a.m. when I saw him. I walked out from the radio station and started walking home. It was late, as I said, and I knew shortcuts. I turned to cut down a side street and I saw him. He's a tall figure, at least six and a half feet tall. When I saw him, he was standing under the street light, dressed in an old suit. At first, I thought he was a homeless man. Now, I had just turned into the street when I saw him. I stood watching him, and he really started to freak me out as he was coming toward me. I couldn't move. I couldn't call for help. I was frozen in terror. As he was walking toward me, he tilted his face toward the sky. That's when I saw his grin. According to other witnesses, he is always smiling with a huge grin that spreads wide across his face. It's a distorted grin. When you see him, his smile cuts deep into your soul. He doesn't act drunk or under the influence of drugs or anything. His smile doesn't seem to be from any inebriation. No. <laughs> it's a smile of pure insanity. He chased me as, as he does all the people who have seen him. Anyway, I made it home and locked the door behind me. I looked through the front door to see if I could see him, but he was gone. That deranged smile will be burned into my memory forever. And now, one more. Have you ever found yourself driving alone late at night? Homeward bound from a late shift at work or after a midnight run to the local convenience store or maybe, like our next story, heading home for the holidays. Ever had a stranger follow your every move? After I tell you this story, you won't want to drive alone again. It was Christmas break and a young woman was travelling home from college. It was late and she just wanted to get home and be with her family. As she entered one particularly long, dark stretch of forest, her car that had been following her suddenly raced up close and the driver flashed the car headlights. She accelerated to pull away, but the car kept pace and again the headlights flashed on high beam. She accelerated again, but the driver was now tailgating her and flashing the lights on and off. High beam, on and off, on and off, on and off. She reached for her phone to call emergency, but the familiar strobing of blue lights from an approaching police car made her sigh with relief. The police officer must have seen what was going on. She pulled over onto the shoulder of the road, as did the car behind her. She watched as the police car stopped immediately behind her car, and the police officer quickly exited running towards her. Without a word, he threw open her car door and jerked her out of the car, grabbing her by the arm. 
He handed her over to the men who had been following her. Confused and before she could ask what was happening, the police officer ran back to her car with his gun drawn. He opened the back door and shouted, Get out of the car slowly with your hands in the air! college student watched as a man holding a knife got out of the back seat of her car. Her knees buckled under her, but the man who'd been following her supported her. As they watched her unwanted passenger handcuffed, the man described how much, t- how each time her unwanted passenger rose up from the back seat with a knife poised to stab her, he flashed the headlight on high beam. Every time the man retreated behind her. Now I see we have time for one more story. This is one I have written called Unidentified. Bill was a photographer. Where he went, so did his camera. They were inseparable. It was about 3 a.m. when he was driving home from a late-night photography assignment. Some boring old-fashioned parade in the city followed by an after-party and saw it. A blinding flash of light pierced the black sky, streaking through the sky to his right like a surgeon's scalpel slicing through the flesh. Bill slammed the brakes on his car and reached for his camera, snapping photo after photo of the sky. He snapped photos following the arc of light until he saw the glowing mound of rubble in the distance to his left. Something had crashed. Meteorite. Returning to his car, Bill opened his camera case and took out the longer, more powerful lens. He attached it and started snapping shots of the rubble, which was about a kilometre away from where he stood. He must have taken about 50 photos and then he saw it. A figure standing next to the rubble. The police were fast, he said to himself, taking more photos of the figure silhouetted by the red glow. He zoomed in and the man turned to face him. Do you know Bill was there? Do you know Bill was taking photographs? Bill kept snapping. He couldn't see if the man was wearing a uniform. But uniform or not, Bill was feeling uneasy. He climbed into his car and sat watching from the driver's seat. He waited for a few minutes, his camera now in the passenger seat next to him. Before starting his engine, a loud growl emanated from the direction of the man and Bill sped off as a red flash of light burst through the darkness where he had been parked only a minute before. At home, Bill had a restless sleep. In his dreams, he could see the burning red eyes staring at him. Then he was on a gurney and there were several of the figures with their red glowing eyes and dark faces. This time he could see their faces with tentacles quivering and squirming from their faces. The ends of the tentacles had snapping mouths with sharp teeth. They looked like some sort of mutant leeches. The creatures were now leaning over him and doing all sorts of experiments. They scratched his skin and put samples of, uh, from his scratch on petri dishes. They removed hair and blood samples. They inserted catheters and other implements. Bill was protesting the entire time, screaming at them to stop. They ignored him. When they inserted the probe into his nasal cavity, deep into the back of his nose, he woke in a screaming sweat. 
He sat shaking in the darkness of his bedroom, vaguely aware that the front door to his house was swinging closed. He brushed the dream off as simply that, a dream, and made his way to the kitchen where, with the refrigerator door open, he stood staring at the shelves of food and drink. He removed some minced meat and a bottle of milk and placed them on the kitchen bench, then took the carton of eggs from the shelf and put them with the rest of the ingredients. Leaving the refrigerator door open, he stared at the raw meat and eggs, and after a few moments he scooped the meat with his hands, shoveling it into his mouth raw. Then he put an egg into his mouth, not just the yolk and the egg white, but complete in its shell, and crushed the shell in his mouth, swallowing the contents. He opened the bottle of milk and started drinking it, milk running out of the corner of his mouth and down his chin to the floor. He looked at the living room, the glow from his tropical fish tank attracting him. Before long, he was eating his pet fish, swallowing them whole and alive before returning to the comfort of his bed where he slept without any further interruptions. The next morning, Bill woke and rubbed the sleep from his eyes. He sat up, looking bewildered. That was the freakiest dream, he said. He was vaguely aware of a slight skin irritation where somehow he must have scratched himself. Other areas of his body ate, but then this was not unusual for a party animal such as himself. He walked into the kitchen where he stood staring at the mess from the night before. A plate which had previously had raw minced meat, broken eggshells, spilled milk. He would have disciplinary words from his housemate when he gets home from work later. The face in the bathroom mirror stared back at him. The eyes, bloodshot. But it was the whiskers in his beard that frightened him. They looked more like tentacles than hairs, with snapping, snarling mouths on the end of each follicle. And so it is time to leave you once again as you lay in bed tonight and turn off the bedside lamp. Remember to say goodnight to the thing under your bed. Stories on tonight's episode of The Midnight Hour included The Elixir of Life by Honor de Balzac, suspense radio drama starring Ralph Edwards in Ghost Hunt, adapted for radio from an original story by H.R. Wakefield, urban legend stories The Rake, The Smiling Man and Unwanted Passenger, adapted for the radio by Brenton Fole and Unidentified by Brenton Fole. With thanks to regular listeners Kelsey M and Tara S. The Midnight Hour welcomes letters and short stories from our listeners. We also invite anybody who has had experiences with the paranormal, supernatural, extraterrestrial or the unknown to be interviewed on our show. All emails should be sent to info at iplradio.org.au with the Midnight Hour in the subject line. Thank you for listening.
Coming to you from Rockingham, IPL Radio.